Thanks for being with us on this Sunday morning, January 6th. This might be the month for many people where you dread opening the credit card statement or you begin to realize just how expensive the holidays were. And maybe, maybe you're in a situation where it seems a bit hopeless trying to get out of debt, trying to get better money management skills happening. Well, my next guest is here to talk about that. Kelly Keene is a financial expert and she joins us on the line. Kelly, thanks so much for being with us. Great to be with you, Jill. Uh, is this uh, the time of year, I would imagine, that you hear more from people who are suddenly or finding themselves in that uh, financial hangover? Yeah, you know, a lot of people are just, it, it, there was so much exuberance at the holidays. Uh, a lot of surveys that came out before the holidays were saying, no, people said that they were going to rein it in and all of that. We don't actually have the numbers yet of what people spent, but almost every year, it's always more than they thought, right? It's, I talked to so many nonprofit credit counselors and, and, and pros in the industry, like certified financial planners, and they, they say that if people just spent what they thought they spent, like this is the big takeaway, Jill, they would be okay. It's that most people have no idea what they're spending. They're not being mindful. They're not telling it up. I know it's, it's hard, absolutely hard to keep track, but um, the, the reality is, that even before the holidays, even before the last couple interest rate hikes, Canadians were, were 50% of Canadians were $200 away from not being able to pay their bills. I can only imagine how much more difficult it will be now for a lot of people as they have that sobering look, like you said, the credit card statements coming in. Um, it's, it's going to be a challenge for a lot of people for sure. And is it over the holidays as well, or is it this time of year? Uh, because there are so many things, maybe added expenses, and uh, it's it's easy to put it on the credit card and to have that kind of mindset of, I'll deal with it in January. Yeah, absolutely. And look, it's tough for a lot of people. I mean, you know, uh, Vancouver's an expensive city. It's, it's really hard to, um, like, even... This is probably one of the most difficult things I find as well is just looking at everyone's social media account and keeping track with everyone and keeping score. I can't tell you how many people uh, will look at that and feel like a, a failure, feel like they need to spend more, feel like they need to be doing more in life, forgetting that that's just a small snapshot. Now, I've been on the education side for the last 14 years, writing books and things of that sort, but when I was in the industry for 12 years, I have to tell you that there's like, there's, people have no idea if someone is doing well financially or not. They look at their neighbors, they look at their coworkers, they look at everyone and think, man, what a failure I am. And, and that is like, uh, like you were saying at the beginning of this, is there hope? There's always hope, but that is the number one thing you need to vow to not do in 2019 is do not look at anyone and think that you can compare yourself that's why it's so important to have a pro on your side to also just help you understand where you sit relative to other people. You might be surprised that you're doing better than you think. And you're absolutely right. Looking at social media feeds and looking at what people post and what it appears like is often not what's actually happening. I remember once commenting on somebody's house or saying, oh, that, that person's house is so beautiful. And, and the person I was talking to looked at me and said, you know, there's not a stick of furniture in that house. It's all on the outside. So we can get sucked up into looking and thinking that everybody else's life is better. Yeah, absolutely. And and there is so much pressure today to get a home, to do all these things. Uh, I've, I've heard from so many people, especially in B.C., uh, baby boomers that have done well, 
that are saying, look, it's impossible for their kids to get into the housing market. So they're helping them out, right? They're helping them with the down payment or whatever. When in reality, is that the best course? Is that the, are you setting your kids up, like you said, for that house that is, is, doesn't have anything in it? Doesn't, and, and here's, here's another big takeaway is, I, I said that scary stat, and the Financial Planning Standards Council and Credit Canada have done a number of surveys recently as well that, you know, one in three uh, Canadians, could they failed the stress test. What does that mean? It means that they literally did not have enough money for an emergency car repair or a vet bill. This is a huge red flag. It's a really big red flag if, if you're listening right now and you do not have at least experts say you should have three to six months savings that are available to you, and, and Canadians don't, uh, a lot of them don't have this emergency savings account, um, you know, it really does put that stress on your finances. And if you do find yourself just, like, trying to pay the minimum payment, uh, you have that house with no furniture, this, this should be a wake-up call, hopefully, that um, that is the number one thing you need to tackle this year is getting that emergency savings f- uh, account funded. And if that all sounds like a lot and it sounds complex, um, you know, there, there is financial help out there. It's so funny. People will look at their health and they'll be like, okay, they're going to join a gym and get a personal trainer and, and get a nutritionist on their side. But they'll forget that there's folks that also can help them, um, you know, figure out their financial blind spots and also get out of a pickle if they find themselves in one. So what is your first advice then to somebody who might be uh, dealing with that, uh, maybe a credit card debt that seems a bit, uh, seems almost impossible to try and pay it down completely uh, and is in that situation where uh, just overwhelmed by finances and financial issues? Yeah, so, so many people are. So there's, there's two, two professionals you want to look at. Number one, you want to look at someone like a certified financial planner. They're going to sit down, they're going to look at your life they're going to look at, are there blind spots? Are you leaving money on the table at work that could, um, you know, bump up your retirement savings while you're paying down your debt? A lot of people think you need money to go and see these folks, but that's not in fact true. There's also fee-only planners that charge by the hour or the plan. Now, maybe some of your listeners are like, oh, they don't even, that's not even an option. Okay, then option B is a non-profit credit counselor. And what these folks are going to do, it's free to go and see them. They're going to pull your credit report for you. That does not hurt your score, by the way. They're going to do all that for free. And they're going to sit down and figure out what is your best course. How do you get this paid off? Now, the reality is, Jill, you can call up your bank. You can call up your credit card company and say, look, you're having a hard time. Now, that's scary. And a lot of people, when they're in a financial bind, they don't have that confidence. They don't have that you know, they feel a lot of shame and embarrassment, so they don't know how to do those things. But the reality is that you can, okay? Um, you can negotiate down your credit card interest rate. Maybe it means missing a mortgage payment, and, and that's an option with a lot of mortgages. But again, if that's just too hard, too complex, you don't have the confidence to do that, the nonprofit credit counselor is going to walk you through the steps of, of what you can do, how you can get that debt paid off. And I got to tell you, the number one thing I hear from people all over the country is, I got to have a plan first. I got to figure it out before I go see the banker, before I see the the planner or the counselor. And in fact, that's not true. You don't go to your doctor when you've got it all figured out. You don't hire the personal trainer because you've got a plan and you just want them to watch you, you know, exercise on the treadmill. You want them to come up with a plan for you. So uh, 
that's super, super important for people to realize. Um, and they're going to take that shame and embarrassment away as well. Uh, you tweeted about something, uh, the anti-budget. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I, I personally hate budgets like I hate diets because people can stick to them for a short period of time, but usually not long. So, and, and then two, how can anyone tell you what you and your family should spend when they don't even know you? So here's the challenge for January is, you know, take the whole month and you, you track every single dollar that you spend just like you would track your calories, okay? That's the best way to figure out how you're going to get into better shape. You want to track your financial calories, and you're going to have to be a little bit of a detective because some stuff is obvious. If you buy everything on on one debit card or credit card or whatever, the bank's going to do a little tracking for you. But there's a lot of stuff you have to dig into, like what are your bank fees? What are you paying for interest on all of your loans and credit cards and things of that sort? What's your car and home insurance costing you? How about your cell phone? Like, I I just dug through my my cell phone and my internet and all of that, and I was being overcharged on a bunch of stuff. And and just like a a 10-minute call uh, got me a a bunch of stuff waived and, and a better plan. And I actually, in fact, do that every six months. So what you want to do, you want to track all your spending at the end of 30 days or just the end of January, add it all up see what the categories are, and see where you as a family can cut some of that fat because you have, to, you have to buy in. The kids have to buy in. Your spouse has to buy in. But when you see it all added up and then you times it by 12, like, wow, that's what we're spending each year. It's a real awakening. And then you can get online, get on uh, some of the great calculators out there. You can go on Credit Canada. You can go on um, the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada. You can just Google their uh, uh, financial calculators. And you can see how, you know, maybe just $5 a day more on your credit card could take it from you paying, I don't know, I've seen some as high as 80 years if you only pay the minimum, maybe down to, you know, five years or 10 years, as soon as you see that, Jill, like you see, wow, if we actually do this as a family, we can be debt-free. That's so empowering. And that's where the hope comes in. That's where you feel like, yeah, what we're doing will actually make a difference. And I guess it's a matter of disciplining yourself, too, in that it's it can be some work, like you said, tracking everything that you spend, making sure you're keeping keeping tabs on it, and then continuing to do that. You know, the reality is, like, is there anything in life that comes to us without work, right? I heard this great quote not that long ago, what you appreciate appreciates. Like, as soon as you appreciate your health, it starts to be there more for you. If you're appreciating your work, it's it's there for you, too. It's it's the same thing with your money. Uh, Unfortunately, and I hear this as well all the time, as you probably do, too, is that why is this not taught in school? Why... Do we not get a financial, you know, foundation when we come out? And the reality is, is that we don't. So we have to teach ourselves. We have to, you have to teach your kids and, and stop making your financial life an event to just get over with. Like, oh my God, we got the mortgage. Whew, throw that document in a drawer and never look at it again. Well, that in fact is the wrong thing to do. Interest rates have gone up several times last year. There may, you know, they're likely going to go up again in 2019. Do you even know what kind of mortgage you have? Do you know if you have uh, a variable rate versus a fixed rate? If you've got a variable rate, that's going up every single time mortgage rates go up. That means it's costing you more money. Should you be talking to someone and maybe seeing if you should be locking in 
all were part of it. Like, you can see how we have these these milestones and we just are, are relieved that they're over with. But you're right, it is some work. i got to tell you, it's worth it, though. It is so worth it. Um, but it, it, when you are facing tough times and there's more bills than there is money at the end of the month, the inclination is just to, you know, not open those credit card statements. Um, it, it is really, really hard. But doing nothing definitely doesn't make it better. All right. Uh, very good advice. Uh, Kelly, on that note, we'll leave it there. People can check out your website. Uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jill. Well, we have been uh, talking a fair amount about the BC assessments, uh, how things have changed in Metro Vancouver and other parts of the province, uh, depending on what kind of property you might own or uh, be associated with. Uh, You might have seen this story as well. It has to do with Pacific Sun Produce, which is a store on Kingsway. It's near Metro Town in Burnaby. It's been there for more than 20 years, and it is very well known in the community. But the owners are now saying that they might be forced to shut down because of a huge uh, increase in their assessed value. So let's bring in Susan Sung, who is one of the owners of Pacific Sun Produce. And Susan, thanks so much for being with us this morning. Hi. Hi. Uh, how are things going there today? Uh, really good. So we got a lot of support from the customer. Even somebody move away, they still come back to sign for us. Uh, it's really um, thanks for those people helping us. Uh, well, I just need, I just need, uh, I want people to know how hard we are working, try to survive, but this huge amount increase, so that can't, we cannot afford it. I bet it's not only me, I think a lot of small business, they can't, they didn't say anything, they closed the store, nobody know what happened, and then that's, I hope this, um, that I petition I'm doing, so let the uh, people know we are not alone. Uh, so um, walk us through what happened. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. What happened as far as the assessed value of the place uh, where you lease? Uh, how much did your payments or how much uh, has that increased? Uh, it's around 37% in my store. That my, my place is only 800 feet, uh, square feet. I My portion is uh, almost $2,000 increased for the month so every um the rent is from 4,800 uh jump to 6,650 uh it is for this type of business it's really um really really hard really hard to keep running like this because my store is like a produce store also like some latino grocery the profit is not that that uh huge the profit so that that's why uh, I'm so sad that that happened to me. But uh, I hope the government or City Burnaby or assessment office they know how hard the small business running. So they can, they they can do something about this type of problem. And was was it the shopping center itself? So so your store is part of the the old Orchard Shopping Center. Uh, it saw its assessed value go up about forty two percent. So it saw a huge increase in the assessed value. Uh, who was it then? Was that was it a direct um, result of that 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 your lease payments were increased? Yes, just push push up all the increase. Uh, besides the increase of the rent, 
and on top we have to pay the tax of the the property tax um, that belongs to the owner. Mm. So usually we pay just reasonable uh, amount, like a, I pay like a one thousand dollar the tax part, but now jump up like a two thousand five hundred only the property tax. And not only me or my neighbor, everybody has a portion. Depend how how big your your the the store. So, um, some of the neighbor, the English is not very good. They they don't know what to do. But I think I have to do something for them too. Let them know they are hard to run the store. Uh, if you are forced to to close down, would mm-hmm. will you try and reopen somewhere else, or or what will you do? I I don't know. I try my best to stay because uh, I have a very um, very me- a lot of memory in this store. I have very nice customer. I go to sh- I go to work. It's like a good to see all my old friends. Um, I don't I don't want to leave from this store. So I don't know. <laughs> I I still, I don't I don't have a second plan yet. And and it sounds like, I mean, people know your store. Like uh, I said off the top, you've been there for more than 20 years. Um, I would imagine you have a pretty strong customer base uh, in that neighborhood. Yes, yes. Has the uh, area changed a lot around you in that um, with building and development? Uh, has, uh, it, it has changed. I mean, there are a lot of towers in that in that area now. Yes, yes. A lot. A lot has changed. Uh also, a lot of my customers they move away because they can't afford the the um, the rent because always up 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 up. So it's it's very very difficult for somebody for renting uh, apartment or condo or something like that. Have you had to increase your prices of uh, the prices of your um, your produce and of your merchandise to to try and make I, ends meet? I can't. It's difficult. You know, uh, it's a lot of competition and uh, uh, anywhere. So if your price, like a ten percent or twenty percent more than anybody, you won't. They won't come to, to my shop. Who can to shop to you? Yeah, uh, very, very true. You're right. They're gonna they're gonna go somewhere else. Yeah. Yes. What do you even, do? Oops, yeah, sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Even they say they will support me, but I think they don't. Um, it's not their fault. Why you have to pay extra money because this money goes to somewhere we don't know. And also, uh, this money is everybody working hard to get some money to, to live or to save. I don't think if they deserve something like that. When do you think you'll make a decision or when will you need to make a decision on what happens to the future of your store? Uh, I... I, I have to talk to the landlord. I have to talk to the maybe City Burnaby, and they might do something. I don't know. I don't. It's my first time doing something like that, so I don't. I have no idea what it is. But I I have to try. If I don't try, I never get it. If I try, I might get it. 
Oh, exactly. And we talked about this. Uh, we were talking about it on the program yesterday. I mean, there are uh, ways that uh, you can challenge the assessment. I would imagine, though, it would have to be at the shopping center. The old Orchard Shopping Center would have to go to BC Assessment and, and ask for uh, or appeal the assessment and, and perhaps try and get it lowered or, or lower and then, and then lower the cost to you. Uh, but it sounds like that, that that's something that could take some time, even if that's a possibility. Yes, I know, I know. But, um, well, my husband said he's going to open on Sunday because usually we work on Monday to Saturday. So we got a Sunday off for the family or the, for our rest. He is thinking he might open on Sunday, make some more uh, income. Uh, but they, I, I, we are not young. We are already 60. My husband is 60-something. For us, it's really hard to work seven days a week. Also, my husband like work at fourteen hour every day. Uh, we try, we try. I don't know yet. All right. Well, I know you have a lot of support in the community, and you guys aren't giving up without a fight. Uh, Susan, I'm sure we will check back in with you and see what happens next in this. But thank you so much. I'll let you go. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about this today. Yes, thank you. But, uh, not uh, the only story like that out there. And this uh, after the assessments that were released just a few days ago. Uh, let's bring in Tom Davidoff. He is a professor at the UBC Souter School of Business uh, to talk a little bit more about the housing market and what we can expect in 2019. Uh, Tom Davidoff, thanks so much for being with us. Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you. I uh, wanted to touch on that first uh, before we talk uh, more generally about uh, the housing market, because uh, I know you've talked about uh, property taxes, uh, the rates at which we pay in BC, uh, the difference between uh, the commercial rate and the residential rate. Uh, what do you say to small businesses that are saying, wait a minute, these uh, the property taxes are going up so much, uh, we're almost, we're looking at, at possibly closing? Yeah, a lot of this is to do with... Uh uh, just a provision that's common in leases, which is the landlord, of course, owes the property tax, uh, but then they pass that uh, tax through in a sort of net or triple net lease uh, to tenants. And I think because there are so many commercial properties that have these huge valuations, not for their current use, but because eventually they're going to get rezoned to allow uh, tall apartment buildings. I think that pass-through really may not work going forward. I think tenants should be very careful in signing leases. Uh, and because, you know, I mean, if landlords are sitting on empty space, uh, eventually uh, they're going to have to make concessions to tenants. And I think the norm may have to become uh, the residential part of the valuation uh, may not get passed through or the tenants may limit how much uh, property tax they uh, reimburse the landlord for because many businesses we're hearing are getting clobbered uh, by property taxes that may be more than their operating profits. And what does it do to neighborhoods, do you think? I mean, we're talking, we were just talking to the owners of a produce store in, in that, I mean, it's it's been in this neighborhood for more than 20 years. And do we run the risk of if, if we don't pay attention to this or look at what's happening, if, if these mom and pop shops shut down, do we run the risk of, of, of kind of gutting neighborhoods? 
you'd have to think that would mostly be a risk uh, when properties are redeveloped. I, I just have to believe that th- there won't be empty spaces for long. You know, nature abhors a vacuum. Uh, and I think landlords and tenants are going to have to come to some different kind of agreement than simply the landlord gets to pass through unconditionally property taxes, no matter how much they change from year to year. Uh, but this is a serious issue. Uh, there are certainly uh, many uh, commercial businesses being impacted by very high property tax pass-through. And, you know, part of the answer is fixing the difference between residential and commercial property taxes. Uh, The other is maybe some kind of administrative change where there's a clear distinction between the property tax from the operating property uh, and the hypothetical future residential value, which is real value controlled by the landlord, uh, but really has nothing to do with the tenant's business. And what about the ratio? Because it does change depending on what city we're talking about. I mean, this particular business was in Burnaby, where where the, the math looks like businesses uh, make up about less than 10% of the properties, but they pay about half the property taxes. Uh, 7% in Vancouver, they pay about 45%. What about that ratio? Well, part of the issue, of course, is commercial properties tend to be located in, in, in better places. You know, obviously, retail tends to be in busy busy places where values are greater. But there are other issues as well. There is this issue that property taxes are higher on commercial use than residential, which doesn't really make a lot of sense. I mean, you know, businesses create jobs, which are a good thing. Uh, people create crime and a need for education and risks. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I don't know why we need to charge businesses a much higher rate than people for being in our community. Uh, And then you just have this issue of uh, the potential above commercial because we have had this tremendous run up in residential value that's created this new value of potential residential apartments above commercial. Uh, Do you think, is it fair to, to charge people based on what the property could be rather than what it is? That's a really good question. And arguably, uh, property taxes ought to be based on uh, potential rent from a property as opposed to future rents. There's a really good case for that because suppose you've got a now what they do with zoning is complicated, but there was that case in Burnaby with a ceramics factory that's not even zoned residential yet, but because a building was rezoned nearby, uh, they seem to be valuing based on uh, commercial, uh, on residential valuation, even though it's not even zoned for residential. Now, the building really does have that value because eventually it will be rezoned. Everybody knows it, and so the value's there. The question is, uh, is it appropriate to tax this year based on next year's future zoning? Uh, and I think the answer is once somebody has the zoning, you shouldn't discourage them from rebuilding by giving them a break of lower property taxes if they don't meet zoning. But before a building is rezoned, I think there's a pretty good case not to have property taxation based on the future zoning. All right. Uh, I want to touch on uh, on the bigger picture or, or kind of more generally what we're seeing as well in that uh, 2019, and not that we can predict exactly what's going to happen. Uh, what do you think, what is it that's that's leading to the, the, the detached uh, homes, the, the lowering of the, the assessed value in Vancouver? It's it's going up in other parts of the province, but it's, uh, it's we've seen a lowering in Vancouver and, and what we've seen with the assessments that have come out. Yeah, well, it did go up uh, in other parts of the province. I suspect uh, had the 
you know, the property tax assessments run from summer to summer. So we're looking at valuations as of last summer. I think other parts of the province, for example, Greater Victoria, residential has slowed down there too. Uh, but in Greater Vancouver, we've had a weak single-family market since the summer of 2016. We've had foreign buyer tax, speculation tax, empty homes tax, uh, and now we've got the additional school tax on homes worth over $3 million, uh, and we've got stricter zoning rules at the provincial level, So, I'm sorry, at the federal level. So between the mortgage market and taxes and just possibly a general exhaustion among buyers and an inability to make these payments, uh, limits on money coming out of China, there is just a lot staring down the single-family market, and sales have been slow for a couple of years now. Uh, has it done anything, though, because all of those taxes that you just listed off, uh, the public has been told that these are all uh, to address affordability. These are measures being brought in to cool the market. It seems like they've cooled in the high end of the, the cooled the high end of the market, but really not done anything for what might be considered affordable. Well, it's hard to know what would have happened without the taxes. And finally, for whatever reason, it looks like the condo market has slowed down from where it was. And probably more important, we have a lot of completions coming online. Uh, In terms of the condo market, you have to believe that the federal mortgage rules have made some difference. Uh, Some, you know, if you look at where the speculation or at least empty homes tax hits, it does tend to be uh, higher end, uh, but some of the condo market is affected. But it's certainly true that the weakness we've seen in home prices has been concentrated at the top of the market. So, you know, what do the taxes do for affordability? Uh, Even if they don't make homes more affordable, of course, they do provide revenue uh, that lets the province hopefully dial back taxes on uh, working or buying stuff. Hmm. And do you see it continuing to cool in uh, 2019? Well, you want to be careful about uh, projecting what's going to happen to asset prices like uh, housing or any other or stocks, because if if everybody knew prices were going to fall, they'd be lower today already. On the other hand, generally speaking, it's common when you have a weak month this month, particularly uh, when inventory builds up and you've got more sellers than buyers, that tends to predict prices falling again next month. So uh, we don't know where prices will be at the end of the year, but a reasonable guess is they're going to continue to decline for the next couple months. All right. uh, We'll leave it there. We are out of time. Uh, Professor Davidoff, thank you so much for joining the program today. Thank you for your time. Happy New Year. Well, if you have heard of something called Dry January, you likely know what it's all about. The title is pretty self-explanatory. It's taking a break for the month of January from alcoholic beverages. And it appears that this trend is becoming more and more popular. Uh, Let's bring in Adam Shirk, who is a PhD student in the Social Dimensions of Health program at the University of Victoria. Adam, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me today. Uh, talk a little bit about this, uh, if you can, in dry January. And are we seeing it? Are we able to measure and see that more people are, are trying this out? Sure. Now, dry January is a public health campaign. It was first practiced in the U.K., but it's since spread to Canada, to the U.S., to Australia and other countries. And like you said in your intro there, it's a simple challenge of abstaining from alcohol for the month. And we might do that for the purposes of better health or for saving money or maybe for just reflecting on our relationship with alcohol to consider if we need to drink as much as we do. 
And do you find any one of those is more of a draw for people, the, the money savings? Uh, I know people uh, often um, experience weight loss as well if they're trying to lose weight. Or is there one particular arm of that that, that is more of the driver? I think they all go hand to hand, and I think January is a good time for it in, in the calendar because it's kind of right after that Christmas period. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but some of us, you know, we might get a little excessive during the Christmas period with um, with our eat and with our drink. So uh, January might be a good time to see if we can uh, tone back on the alcohol a little bit. Uh, definitely. There was uh, some excess, uh, I'll say, I witnessed and partook in this uh, as well. I certainly was not uh, alone in the month of December. Um, there, there's uh, research into this as well that uh, shows it's not just January, but if somebody takes on this challenge, it can have an impact on the entire year. Yeah, so there's enough of a critical mass of people doing dry January now that, that people can study it. So some research out of the UK found the following. Um, They looked at about 800 people that took part in dry January last year, and then they followed up in August, six months later, and they found that there are some lasting effects. So um, they found that they drank, the number of times that they drank per week went down from four to about three, and on those days when they did drink, they drank less. And particularly, they found that all the way in August, that the frequency of being drunk dropped from about three and a half times per month to two times per month. So there are good good and some lasting effects of that uh, trying dry January all the way in August of the same year. And do you think it helps people as well um, better get a better grip on the relationship between alcohol intake and and health in that? And maybe even, I mean, there's often the, the connection made between alcohol and cancer, but maybe yeah. even not as serious as cancer, just general good health. You're right. Like we looked, we did a cost of substance use study back um, that came out in the previous year, and what we found that there, one of the biggest things about alcohol is the day after you drink, with those hangovers or just you're feeling a bit off, your productivity goes down a lot. Whether or not whether you're at home or whether you're at work, uh, you're just you're not up to your best. You're maybe working only at 75% capacity, and all these little bits over the whole population add up to quite a lot. So. Um, our society loses out on all that production because we might be hungover. Um, These are kind of less serious effects of alcohol, but they all accumulate over time. Hmm. And I found it interesting, too, that looking at the idea of dry January, because it does, I suppose if you're you're quite a heavy drinker, it would seem like an extreme step to go from that to a month of nothing. Uh, But it's, it's not just people who say drink every day or drink quite a lot every day. It's something that that shows benefits as well for social drinkers. Absolutely, that's true, and it's good to reflect on why we are drinking. It's something that I think about myself all the time. Um, It's just something that's so kind of built into our culture. We kind of do it without thinking. But sometimes we don't take a step back and think, do I want to do this or do I have to do this, and why am I doing this? So I know that now in this work, working in the alcohol field, my drinking has gone down a lot compared to what it used to, although I still drink too, so I reflect on that as well. Uh, you mentioned, too, uh, the hangover and productivity, uh, and that's the one that always, I think, uh, people, we shake our heads because anybody who's who drinks and perhaps has had experiences where you've had too much, uh, you know exactly what a hangover feels like, and it's not a good feeling. Uh, it's almost though like we forget that or or for we fall back into that pattern and we know we're going to feel horrible the next day, yet we still drink. 
I know I don't have a psychological reason for that, but I mean, I will say that the hangover, you know, it tends to get worse with age, and this is really kind of a built-in check with the body, and it's telling you not to drink so much, and it's something that we probably all, including myself, should listen to more. Um, you know, I mean, when you drink less, it'll decrease your risk of cancer, it'll decrease your risk of liver cirrhosis and all these other health effects that accumulate over your life course, so... The less we can drink, really, the, the more healthy we'll be in a general sense. It's, it's interesting we say it's, it's your body telling us that because it, it almost seems like a design flaw of the body in that if our bodies really wanted to tell us that, we would crave the feeling good rather than craving the alcohol. Well, that's a good point. Um, yeah, but particularly on the cancer risk, I'll just say a bit about it. So alcohol is, is one of the leading risk factors for cancer. There are really three leading risk factors for cancer that are behavioral things that we can change, and those are alcohol drinking, um, smoking of cigarettes, and then uh, kind of lifestyle choices like uh, your diet and, and exercise. So if you can, you can get a handle on those three behavioral risk factors that really drive the risk of cancer, it can bring down your risk of cancer by about 50%, because 50% of the risk of cancer is behavioral, and about 50% of the risk of cancer is, is genetic and, and things that are in your environment. Hmm. It's interesting when you look at it the, the, in, in those numbers. Uh, do you think there's a false sense of, uh, in that, I think anybody will, uh, will would agree that smoking is bad. There's nothing that offsets the negative part of, or the negative, the negative um, reaction of smoking. Uh, if yeah. you smoke, it, it's, it's just bad. Whereas there seems to be more of a mindset of, if you're a social drinker, or if, you, if you drink, if you eat well and exercise, you can maybe offset the negative parts of drinking. I've reflected on this a bit. I think there's a few things, maybe because alcohol has been in our culture for so much more time than smoking has, because smoking was pretty new. It really just came around, you know, with the tobacco boom and just in the last century, and then it had kind of a big peak in the 50s and 60s and went back down, whereas alcohol has been very consistent in societies over thousands of years. So I think it's kind of more structurally ingrained in our societies to drink alcohol, and if you just think about social situations, you think about celebrating or something like that, immediately what comes to many of our minds is champagne or having a drink or something like this. So I think what we need is, is more awareness of the harms that alcohol can cause. And I think that very gradually this will cause shifts in behavior in societies towards, with the relationship towards alcohol. And we're seeing this a little bit because the rates of drinking among younger people, among youth, are going down all over the world. And there's a lot of research into why that might be. Um, but one of the things that it may be is that we're becoming more educated about the harms that alcohol can cause, as well as the fact that there are many, lots of different avenues for young people to take on now with social media and the internet. There are just many more things for them to do than maybe there once were. <laughs> All right. Well, it's uh, interesting uh, research for sure and uh, talking about dry January. Um, quickly, can people do this? If people think uh, completely dry January is just too much, do you find, are people doing it uh, a cut-down January? Absolutely, and that can be any month. You can fill in any month for January for that. So with the risk of all of these conditions, um, with things like saving money, the thing that we say about alcohol, we don't, we don't really put forward abstaining from alcohol for the, your entire life because it's just, for my, many of us, not a realistic goal. But what we do say is with alcohol, less is always better. So if, if you're drinking and you've had one drink, consider 
not having a second drink. And if you've had five drinks already, consider not having a sixth. All right. And that goes for the same when you've had no drinks, thinking about not having that first one. Just something to always keep in mind. All right. Adam, thank you so much. Great chatting with you this morning. Thanks. Have a nice day. Let's talk a little provincial politics. And by-elections generally don't get a ton of attention. They're not all that exciting. But this particular one in Nanaimo is, and for some very good reasons. Let's bring in Richard Zussman. He's the online journalist based in uh, at the BC Legislature for Global News. Richard, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, Joe, my pleasure as always. Uh, it is, there is a lot of attention being paid to this by-election because of what is exactly at stake. So run us through uh, who is running and what we're looking at at this point. Yeah, so let's take a look at what we're looking at first, because I think that's most important. It's the big picture for the province. So right now, the makeup in the legislature uh, is the NDP and the Greens together have enough votes uh, to get legislation passed, uh, to you know complete the legislative agenda uh, by just one vote compared to the Liberals, or basically two votes. So if the NDP end up losing this by-election, it's a seat uh, that they held with Leonard Krogh. He resigned to become the mayor of Nanaimo. If the Liberals win it, then it will be a dead heat in the legislature. 43 seats for the Liberals, 43 for the Greens and the NDP combined with the Greens holding three of those seats. In that case, the Speaker of the Legislature, Daryl Plekis, who is now an independent, uh, he used to be a Liberal, he'd have to break all of the ties. And there are a lot of questions about um, how it would work in terms of breaking ties on first, second, third reading of bills. That's what turns things into laws and also on confidence votes. In a tie situation, the NDP would be able to govern with the support of the Greens because practice would have it that the Speaker Plekis would just continue debate. He would just continue things moving, but it would be very hard for the NDP uh, to get any additional legislation passed. Uh, In terms of who's running, the NDP is running Sheila Malcolmson. Uh, She is now the former MP for the area, resigning that seat in order to run in this by-election. Tony Harris is running uh, for the Liberals. His father, Tom Harris, really well-known businessman in the area, uh, car dealerships, uh, cell phone company, uh, very well-known family, the Harris family is. Uh, Michelle Ney also comes from a well-known family. She's the Green Party candidate. Her father, Frank, was a well-known Pirate mayor, they called him. There's a statue of him in the harbor of Nanaimo, uh, one of the most iconic figures in Nanaimo's history. So his daughter, retired teacher Michelle, is running. So, you know, a lot of name recognition, big candidates, and so far getting a lot of attention. So it is traditionally, uh, with the exception of of once or twice, it's traditionally an NDP seat. Uh, Is it strange, do you think, that the Greens are running such a a strong candidate in that uh, if they really wanted that to stay an NDP seat and to make sure the NDP kept uh, the majority or kept the 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 uh, kept the numbers in the legislature that they wouldn't run a candidate? It's it's a weird one, Jill, but, you know, because the Greens have always made the argument they are a separate entity from the NDP. You know, we know that in minority partnerships like this, the minority party often gets decimated in the next election. Most recently, uh, we saw it in the UK, where uh, Nick Clegg's party, he was the helped boost up a government in the UK, and then his party got decimated in the next election. And part of it is the voter says to themselves, 
you know, between the Greens and the NDP, uh, if they're just going to work together, why don't I vote for the party that's actually in power in the NDP? So I think the Greens are trying to send this message. We are a separate entity. We have different ideas. We stand for different things. Yes, in this situation, in terms of the government, we're supporting the NDP, but they really need to send that message they're different. So I think the Greens didn't have a choice about running a candidate. They had to. Sure, they could have run somebody less experienced, but there would have been a lot of questions about, you know, open nominations and all of these things. So I think, though, there's also mixed thoughts about where green voters actually come from. I don't think everybody who votes green necessarily would have voted for the NDP. And there's lots of cases where, you know, some people argue that it's a split, that that half the people that vote for greens would have voted liberals if there was no green and half would have voted NDP. You know, I'm not so sure if that's true, but I think uh, obviously it does concern the NDP that there is another candidate in this race so that they can't just run against the Liberals and say, you know, you know what it was like when the Liberals were in power. They didn't do anything for Nanaimo. They didn't do anything, you know, for people around affordability and all those things. It would have been easier for the NDP to run that campaign, but uh, it's not the campaign they have to run, and they need to put everything they've got into this. The Premier was in Nanaimo yesterday to kick it off. I expect the Premier will be in Nanaimo a lot uh, right up until Election Day at the end of January. And is it getting lost a little bit in that because this by-election, because the numbers are so close and so so much of the focus is on the makeup of the legislature, are the issues themselves getting lost in that residents of Nanaimo are presumably voting for their representative, for the person they think will best represent them, uh, maybe not voting strategically on the makeup of the legislature? Yeah, it's a great question, Joe. And obviously, the conversations that we're having are very different than the conversations that are being had on the door in Nanaimo. But I think you're right that the messaging, you know, my sense I got yesterday from Sheila Malcolmson's messaging, she's the NDP candidate that I just mentioned, is about continuing government. And, you know, if you vote for me, we'll ensure that all the things that the NDP is trying to do will continue because we can continue to govern uh, with a slightly slim majority with the support of the Greens. So, you know, there always are those questions about who are you voting for? Do you want a local representative who will work for your local issues? Or do you want someone who will go to Victoria and be part of a bigger team, especially when it's the government? It's a really good question. I'm sure there are lots of local issues being debated. I'm sure we're likely going to get some sort of um, gift from the NDP over the next few weeks for the people of Nanaimo. We've already seen recently this announcement of an ICU at the hospital there. That's something people have been calling for for a long time. I'm sure we'll get an announcement soon about the connection of a passenger uh, ferry from Nanaimo to Vancouver. That's a project that's been in the works again a long time and seems very close to being finalized, potentially with a little bit of provincial support to push it over the top. So we'll see some of those local issues addressed. But I do think that the common theme, because this by-election is so unique, is about the government and the future of the way that BC is governed. And how much do you think will it play into it in that when the provincial empty home tax was rolled out, there was a bit of pushback from Nanaimo not wanting to be part of that. Will that play into this? Is that a big enough issue? So I think it's an issue, but not a big enough issue. Leonard Krogh since that announcement ran as mayor in Nanaimo 
and one huge. And, you know, everybody in Nanaimo knows him as an NDPer. He's been an NDPer for a long, long time. So I think if there was any resentment, real true resentment against the government, you would have seen it bore out in the way that Krogh did in that mayoral election. Um, but I do think there are some voters there who are frustrated around it. But this idea of the speculation tax irritates some, but I think the voters the NDP is going after are those that are probably in support of the tax and, and see that the tax overall can help address housing affordability. Um, we're not looking at a lot of people who have multiple homes or homes that they keep empty, which are those that are directly impacted by the speculation tax. All right. Uh, the vote uh, January 30th, like you said, will likely see uh, some more uh, announcements in Nanaimo, some more uh, projects and such. I, I do wonder, too, though, if people kind of see through that and realize that these are things that they've been calling for, they've been asking for for so long. And only when it gets to the point that the government, the power is threatened, do they come through. Yeah, so I don't think that is totally true. And yes, people see through that stuff. And I think the NDP is very aware of that as well. But they've only been in power now uh, for a little bit more, you know, right around 18 months. And uh, this ICU issue, that came up when Adrian Dix announced it. You know, I tweeted out, you know, look, here's our first big promise for Nanaimo. And I immediately got a call from Adrian Dix saying, we have been working on this since we came into the office. The Liberals did nothing about this ICU. It was sitting there and we delivered it. And it doesn't just take a flip of a switch. We've been working on this for months and months and months way before Leonard Krogh showed any interest in running for mayor. And so I think a lot of these projects are like that, right? It takes time to get to that point. Yes, it's uh, fitting to to announce them during a by-election, but I think um, because, you know, the premier can be there and the cameras are there and it's a splashy announcement, but I do believe these are projects that have taken a long time to get to. It's just nice for the NDP sake to be able to announce them. But you're right, there is that flip side of people being skeptical saying, you know, only because of this by-election are you providing things for us. And IMO is one of those areas that was long ignored, like many places on Vancouver Island, by the Liberals. It wasn't a priority for them. The Liberals have just one seat right now on Vancouver Island. There's a reason for that. A lot of the funding and investment went to the lower mainland, which are where a lot of the seats are. So... You know, I think people in Nanaimo have a reason to be annoyed for a while about being ignored. So we'll see how they treat that. I think you're right that people see through those things, but I'm not so sure um, it's going to uh, have enough of an impact in terms of the skeptics to reverse the way that people would vote. All right, so we'll see that. Uh, one more question just before I let you go. Uh, yeah. What's happening as far as uh, the speaker, the clerk, uh, and getting more information on that? Uh, what can uh, the public expect uh, on that front? Yeah, so a few more weeks where we have been promised that we will get information from the speaker that does not impact the criminal investigation, but that he can reveal about what this is all about. You know, Joe, this is one of the wackiest (laughs) things I've ever seen in terms of what's going to come next. And uh, I just don't know. So they're getting legal guidance, they being the Legislative Management Committee, about what Daryl Plekis can say. I wouldn't be surprised if they come back and say the lawyer said he can't say anything. But he also could, you know, open up. You know, last time he did one of these big speeches at the committee meeting, he opened all sorts of doors, letting us know that this is likely about, you know, money issues, likely about um, issues of the way that staff have been dealt with at the legislature. You know, these are all things that Plekka said. It, it's it's one of the weirdest things. So keep tuned, um, not this week, but the week after there's going to be this Legislative Management Committee 
where we'll hear from the speaker and we should find out a little bit more information. But, you know, it's, it's, we're, it's heating up here as we, you know, Christmas break just wrapped up. A lot of the ministers are still away, but with this by-election and the speaker thing coming, uh, it should be a pretty interesting January. All right. So we will stay tuned. Uh, Richard, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Joe.